Hey, what's going on? Welcome to Canucks Talk here on Sportsnet 650. I'm Jamie Dodd, joined as always by my co-host, Canucks insider Thomas Drance, who also covers the team for the athletic. Canucks Talk brought to you by Avenue Machinery and Douglas Lake Equipment, keeping you at the top of your game. Now found together online at DLEAMC.com, and we are coming to you live from the Kintech studio, Kintech Footwear and Orthotics. Canada's favorite orthotics provider, supported by over 2,500 five-star Google reviews. Find your perfect fit at Kintech.net. 650-650 is the Dunbar Lumber text line. We're here, Drancer. The playoffs. The Stanley Cup playoffs. Let's go. Oh, they're good. So good. The Western ones in particular. You know what? Last night, yeah. So let, let, are we going to do the – are we going to do the oh, – Let's just get right into the playoffs. It's the day after game one. Like, we'll talk Canucks. We're, we're going to interview Tristan Nielsen from the Abbotsford Canucks here. We'll get into it. But, like, I don't know. I'm jazzed. I'm jazzed enough that I want to start with the playoffs and what we saw last night and what we're going to see tonight. So, but can we do it in the context of the Canucks? Yeah. I mean, we'll, you know, we can sprinkle it in here or there. Because the thing that struck me – about those two Western games, right? Uh, to be totally honest with you, I was at I was at my fourth brunch during the Eastern games. Those what? those start to um those start too early for me. My day's not finished yet. Mm. You know, just another reason why the Eastern time zone is better for watching games. But those Western games, heavy hockey, absolutely lights out, physical, drag it out, brawling games. Those games were played, forget the alley, those plays, games were played in the gutter. It was great. It was so much fun. They were really good. Really good. And they were really fast. Like, I, you know, I'm still stunned that the Dallas Stars didn't win that game. They absolutely put the boot in to the wild for like almost an hour on the game clock. And then an against the grain sort of bouncer gets to Ryan Hartman who's playing hurt and, and I mean, just a fabulous game. And then, and then obviously the Oilers, I think sort of forgot themselves Four stick infractions is four too many at this time of year. Yeah. And the one on DeHarnay in the, in the, in it was the right call. it's like, I it's get a no it. It's like playoff overtime, but I don't know. Your sticks in his skates and no brainer. What are you expecting to happen? No brainer. There's no doubt that that had to be called and lovely setup to fall. Those games were just so fast and so heavy I don't find myself having watched those two Western games being like the Canucks are close to this level, right? I, I, I really did not feel like those were games that the Canucks would have fared well in at all, given the current composition of, the, well, of this team. And it's, we talk so much about just like the overall talent level with the Canucks, but it really is so striking when the playoffs roll around, you know, and you end up sounding like an old hockey dude or whatever, right? But it's like, yeah, they do need to get bigger and tougher. And harder to play against. North there's, South. There's no doubt about that. Those, yeah, were, North, North, those were North-South games. There were a lot of wall guys in oh. those games. A lot of inside guys in those games. <laughs> those, the, the, like Han Solo level wall guys. They were one with the wall. What, what does that mean? When he was in Carbonite, oh. he became a wall guy. It wasn't really a he wall. Was, he was hung on the wall. Yeah, he was part of the wall. He was part, part, of, part the of the brick wall. surface. He was in Carbonite. Not really. What do you mean? Not really. No, it's like it's a separate thing. It's not like a, a picture you hang on the wall isn't part of the wall. But you could He wasn't like built into the wall. But he could have been. Well, okay, but he wasn't. But I, I'm just saying he could have been. Coulda, woulda. Yeah. Your like, analogy could have made sense in an alternate universe. <laughs> I'm just saying he was a he was a um, wall guy yeah. in uh, Return of the Jedi. Anyway, I, you know, 
at the end of the day, what I love about the playoffs is I forget to breathe during the games, which is great. Like I, <laughs> I, I start having to remind, especially during overtime, right? I'm like, oh my yeah, god, overtime is just the best. Yeah, and I, I, I was like, I was, I, I didn't really, I, I didn't think either team was going to score. To be honest, the Dallas Minnesota game for a while, I was kind of surprised it ended when it did, and like I am such a sucker for the marathon. Oh, three, so three or good. four plus OT game. I was like, are we going to get it on night one? Are we going to get it right off the bat here? What was so good about it, too, was you had overtime period, right? And then ends, and you flip to the Oilers one, and yeah. there's like only three minutes elapsed, and you get to watch that. Yep. And then you come back, and you get to watch the – like, when it when it's staggered like that, it's just an absolute hour and a half of hockey-watching pleasure, right? Just fabulous hockey. And, boy, did I need it. Boy, did, like I needed the reminder of of what really high stakes, well played hockey looks like. We got that from the two Western series. We got that from the Boston Bruins without Patrice Bergeron. Mm-hmm. Are they just going to rest Bergeron for the whole series? Being like, <laughs> we don't even. They won. Turns going out we away. don't need you. Well, not not against the Panthers. Come back for the Leafs. Take a week off, Patrice. Yeah, I mean, maybe they can give are them they the ne- s- next game. Are they so good that they can do playoff load management? They are really, really good. They, they are, are absolutely so loaded. It's ridiculous. Yeah. Um. So, yeah, I like the Eastern Conference games were not that interesting. I mean, Boston looked really good, but we expect that, right? Like, everyone, I think, is picking Boston pretty much. Uh, I am picking the Islanders against Carolina, but they lose 2-1. That one was, like, the least entertaining game and then I also was picking um, both Edmonton and Dallas, uh, who lose in overtime last night. But like, I got to be honest, I am not—I did not come away out of either of those games being extremely concerned for the losing team, either the Oilers or the Stars. Oh, like, I, I actually came out—I like I picked Dallas, but like by a hair over the Minnesota Wild. Yeah, and I came out of that game thinking the Wild simply can't hit Dallas's fastball. I truly believe that. I, I know, you know, it, it got to, it got to playoff overtime. A bouncer beats Ottinger. It was going to take something like that to beat Ottinger the way he yep. looked. He he looks like a robot in net, and I say that with the absolute like utmost praise. He's really good. Oh, he's absolutely ridiculous. So quiet, so quiet. Honestly, a little bit like dialed in Demko. Mm. He looks a little. He reminds me a lot of dialed in Demko, which, by the way, is not unintentional. Talk to Jake Ottinger about Thatcher Demko, and he'll tell you that he modeled not just his game, but almost his entire career path after hmm. right? Like, including um, accelerating through high school to play at university early, right? Going to the – I think he went to the other Boston University. Like, I think one's a BC, one's a BU guy. Yes. But, but the, the college path, uh, some of the technique in his game, like, Demko's very much the template, a conscious template for Jake Ottinger – but Jake Ottinger, holy cow, he was good. And and man, it's it's really hard. I really think that Minnesota's overmatched where it counts in that series. And you know, they they might get lucky and extend it to six or seven, but I think the stars have their number. Yeah, I think the stars are deeper. Uh they just have more guys who scare you, guys who you think can kind of rise to they the moment in the playoffs. And like game. Minnesota's big, Minnesota's fast. I get that, but how many lucky breaks, too, did the Wild have as that playoff overtime? Like, it was like every second offensive zone sequence, they'd hit a post, or Brock yep. Faber would make an outrageous game-saving save, or did you see the knob save? There was a knob save off of Dadnov where it, like, hit Gustafson's, the shaft yep. of Gustafson's yep. stick, rather than going straight into the net. Um, um, sorry, Rope Hints hit the post on the power play. That We all know the we all saw the Brock Faber highlight. Great game for Brock Faber. 
fabulous stuff for him. Um, yeah, I mean, the the Wild looked really good, gritty. It's just that Dallas looks like they – Dallas very much looks like they belong in the anything can happen camp mm-hmm. um you haven't you haven't unveiled your I know. anything can happen I'm, teams I'm nervous yet. about it this year I think it's I think it's more that there's like seven teams that are just playoff teams you know what I mean but there's like a wider pool and I feel I feel cowardly to put nine teams in the anything can happen <laughs> tier so I I think I'm just gonna walk it back a little bit and be like this is a year that's a little more wide open as a result of injuries like key injuries to guys like Landeskog etc and uh the overall weakness of the west I, I just don't feel comfortable um, doing it this year. So I guess anything kind of can happen on a weird year like this, but only if you're one of the top 10 teams in the league. And then Edmonton, the way I would look at that, like you can look at it as, oh man, you blew a 3-1 lead late in the second. You were 17 seconds away from winning. That's crushing. You should be really concerned. The way I look at it for Edmonton though is you were 17 seconds away from winning the game in a game in which Connor McDavid did not register a point. Yeah, which right? isn't like happen. that would have been a disastrous loss for LA. Yeah. If you lose a game where Connor McDavid doesn't register a point, that is a backbreaker for you in a series against the Edmonton Oilers. So for if I'm Edmonton, I'm looking at it like, okay, we had our one blank from Connor McDavid. Not that he didn't have his chances, he did, but we had our one blank from McDavid. Guess what? He's probably not going to do it again this series. So I, if I'm Edmonton, I'm thinking, you know what? We're fine. We're totally fine. Like that's tough. You don't, you don't like to lose in that fashion, and I get it. You know, the concerns about can you close out leads, can you play the right way, all that. Still, you were so close to winning, and Connor McDavid didn't score. Like, you'll, you'll be fine. I thought Corpusalo was fabulous, though, right? The the LA Kings, as the quiet, non-Boston Bruins division winner of the NHL trade deadline, I think is really continuing to solidify. That Gavrikov-Corpusalo deal was mm-hmm. exactly what the doctor ordered for that Kings team. Um, shouts to Adrian Kempe. Adrian Kempe doesn't look He's really good, but he doesn't look like what we think of as like a prototypical NHL power forward. But I want to suggest to you that he's the new NHL prototypical power forward because he's even in a series with McDavid, he's like lightning quick, mm-hmm. right? Like his speed is a problem even against the Oilers, which is something, right? There are flashes in this game, even though he's sharing the ice with literally the fastest skating human on the planet where he's the fastest guy on the ice. I, I mean, it, it's wild. The way that he can stretch teams out vertically as a result of that and how well he turns the corner, I mean, he's a real problem. He's a real problem for the Oilers, or uh, for sure. I, I still think the Oilers fundamentally beat themselves. They just – I think they – we're a little too amped. Well, and that's always the concern with the Oilers, though, right? Or, like, one of the concerns is that they will beat themselves. They'll it, find a way to beat themselves. It is, but we saw 50 games in which they really looked like uh, a, a, a more serious team than that. I suspect they I suspect they got amped. They took too many stick infractions. They'll rein it in. I'm not worried about the Oilers. I think they're going to win that series. I don't think L.A. has the offensive top gear to compete. But we did see the template, Right. The, the Kings are dangerous enough on the power play to manufacture just enough offense. Mm-hmm. They're fast enough to be tough for the Oilers to break down. And they've got, you know, a, a few guys, like a few key difference makers, Kempe chief among them, um, that, you know, are certainly going to make this a, a tough series, one the Oilers can't take for granted, uh, the way their discipline anyway uh, implied that they may, may have slightly in game one uh i'm what we mentioned Connor mcdavid not registering a point and ryan on the road says uh, what happened did la have cole castles on the team 
Wow. Somehow they shut they shut McDavid down without Cole Castles. The the, the Cole Castles narrative though was always like he shut down McDavid, and then you went and checked, and it was like McDavid only had 15 points in seven games. Yeah, it's like okay. Uh, and then uh, Jen from Canada says, "Drance, that wall guy analogy landed worse than Luke did on Dagobah." Wow, people are not impressed with the hand Solo wall Why? guy. Why he was in a wall? I don't know. I think stick with Spider Man if you're looking for like. Pop culture wall guy references. No, I'm going to Spider-Man keep is much up stronger. New wall guy right. references. Well, you're gonna you're gonna run into diminishing returns really quickly. <laughs> in that case, why? Because you already got the best one in Spider-Man. Don't if it's not broke, don't fix it. Well, but sometimes you got to fix it. Like sometimes you got to keep trying stuff and sure, you know, got to keep iterating. You can accept that Spider-Man's the best you'll ever do and try and retool that analogy, or. You can strive for something better. Is it guaranteed? Uh, no. Speaking of uh, retools <laughs> and everything, uh, we'll get we'll get, talk a little bit about tonight's slate of playoff games later in the show. Shayna Goldman's going to join us at one o'clock, and again, Abbotsford Canucks uh, <laughs> forward Tristan Nielsen will join us at twelve thirty. Someone comments: friendly reminder that Brock Faber was picked with the second rounder that Vancouver traded to LA for Toffoli. Having a really good twenty-year-old two-way right-handed defenseman would be nice right now. Hey, Faber was going to Minnesota. With with a mm. laser, like Faber was going to Minnesota one way or another. Yeah. So don't worry about it. Don't lose sleep over that one. Um. So you and I had a quick chance to react to the year-end availability from Patrick Alvine yesterday, only about half an hour uh, at the end of the show. Ultimate wall guy, the Kool-Aid man. Yeah, but he, <laughs> but he like okay. smashes through the wall. That's is that what, what, that's is the that ultimate, what you want? Yeah. I want a guy who runs through walls for me, the Kool-Aid man. Oh, yeah. That's a, See? See? Oh, here we go. Well, Fer- sure, Ferris you- Bueller, big fourth wall guy. <laughs> Genius. Brilliant. These are See, our those listeners. are both those are both better than yours. Those though, are so way if better. You cra- than mine. If you crowdsource it, sure you can come up with good Sorry, ones. mine was also good. Those are no, just better. No. Yep. Um anyways, so we had a quick chance to react. But I gotta say, I was thinking about it more yesterday, this morning, overnight. And I gotta say, I think le- yesterday's performance from Patrick Alvine was a big win for me personally, Drance, because it was a big win for Team Run It Back. And you know I have been leading the charge on the idea of the Canucks running it back for next year. Like, just to check through, check off some of the key Run It Back themes we heard from Patrick Alvine yesterday. Like, one, no buyouts, doesn't want to buy anyone out because it's going to harm you down the road, right? Which is, like, my exact argument for doing everything you possibly can to avoid buyouts. Looking to make hockey trades and lateral moves when it comes to moving inefficient contracts, which is just maybe instead of, you know, retaining money, instead of attaching sweeteners to, to uh, contracts, leaving the door open for internal options to fill key roles like, you know, hey, could Niels on maybe step up and be a third line center? Talking about, can Philip Hronik help Oliver ekman Larson rebound next year? And then even on Central with uh, Sat and Reach yesterday saying that he expects to be quiet in unrestricted free agency, which, you know, makes a lot of sense given the incredibly limited amount uh, of salary cap space you added You added up. Now, look, he did say there are changes coming, right? And obviously there are major flaws on this team. And I think I've seen a lot of reaction along the lines of, wait, hold on. If they're not buying anyone out, how on earth is this team going to get better next year? How are they going to address these major flaws if they aren't willing to take more of a sledgehammer to what they already have in place. Like, why is this team only going to rely on internal improvement from the players they already have? I can understand that because, again, like, as you said, just look at the playoffs. This team is obviously has a long way to go to be in the class of the teams we saw playing 
last night. But my whole argument the whole time with run it back, and I think this is kind of what Patrick Alvin was dancing around as well, it's not that running it back and relying on internal improvements is going to be sufficient to dramatically improve your team next year. It's just that in the short term, it's the right call. In the short term, it limits the damage sufficiently, or it, it limits the damage the most to set yourself to set yourself up to take bigger steps down the road. Like if if we're gonna rely on all our guys, on our development staff, and all our guys to train really hard in the summer, if that was the long term plan, that would be very bad. I would not. I would not be good for that. But like for this summer, we're not going to do. We're not going to like stress out about clearing salary cap space and buying UFAs, and we're gonna see what our young guys can do and step up like that's exactly what they should be doing run it back that's what Patrick Alvin was saying I'm fired up about it team run it back scored a big win yesterday Drancer yeah I mean the problem with running it back is if you're running it back and not pushing chips into making the playoffs then why rush to make the heronic deal that you did that's a very fair question like a very fair question. How do you how do you justify opening a one year window in which Heronic and Pedersen are going to cost an 11, 11 and a half, like eleven point seven combined, and then a year out conservatively you're looking at sixteen, right? You're looking at them basically taking Tyler Myers' expiring salary, right? That like uh, more or less. Yep. Right. So your only significant expiring salary after next season is basically going to them. Like, can you waste a run it back season when you have this one year window with, you know, if, if you want to be generous about your core group of Demko, Pedersen, Hronik, Miller, Hughes, right? Group's about to get more expensive. Like, you, you have one year where they're going to be far less expensive as a group than they are the next season. So can you waste that on run it back? But did you get the sense that, at least publicly, that they are willing to kind of like, did you get the sense that they are looking at it that way, right? That they are looking at it as like, oh man, we have this one year and oh. we got we got to really no. move heaven and earth to to improve this team well, next year. So I think I think the die is cast, and that yes, this is going to be an all in year. Never underestimate the ability of this organization to behave with playoff thirst first and foremost in mind, right? So they're going to talk a conservative game because they can't make promises right now, right? The buy even Patrick Alvin's buyout answer, I still think wasn't bulletproof, right? He left wiggle room. My preference, my intention is not to buy guys out, right? We're we're instead good, but but we're also going to make changes. We're going to look at lateral trades, right? That was mm -hmm. sort of the the thesis, right? At the end of the day, the thing about the buyout window is that it extends until June thirtieth. Right, you can get through the draft and struggle to move money and struggle to make the deals that you want, and you can revisit stuff on the eve of free agency. Right, if the sweeteners being asked for to move guys are too significant, like we all talk about Myers, Garland, Besser, but but Harmon and I have a new article up right yes. now at the Athletic, who stays, who goes, analyzing the Canucks roster for the 2023-24 season, and one thing we posit in a variety of sections, and the and the two players that I think it's most interesting to think about in this manner. Uh, one's Oliver Ekman Larson. So nothing in this club's history suggests that they'd buy out Ekman Larson. Like nothing in this ownership group's history suggests that they'd rubber stamp that move, even if hockey operations wanted to do it, right? Hockey operations clearly doesn't want to do it based on their commentary on Monday. And yet an Oliver Ekman Larson buyout saves you 7.1 million against the cap. Like you're talking sledgehammer. There is no more effective yep. tool 
to open up cap space for this summer than an Ekman Larson buyout. Nothing. There's nothing that compares in terms of like a deal you don't have to make with anybody else. You can do it yourself. It's just done. We put Ekman Larson in the like he's staying we think tier because while we don't expect it to happen, we can't ignore the temptation that could exist, particularly if the offseason trade market is as hostile to teams trying to shed money in terms of uh, expensive wingers right at, at the draft and, and as the offseason unfolds. The temptation is going to be so significant that I, I think it's one worth monitoring up until the very moment the bio window closes, like until that last day. Mm-hmm. And, and in Ekman Larson's case, because he's got an MC, doesn't even have to be waived. So it's like really until the moment the buyout window um, slams shut, I think it's one we have to be paying attention to. And I don't think it's a possibility that we can afford to write off, even if we don't expect it, even if we know that the organization would be loath to do it. It's a conversation that's going to have to be revisited again internally in in a world where the Canucks find it tough to shed money in other in other ways. And the other guy who we, we built a section called like cap allocation yep. considerations. And this includes three names you'd expect and one you wouldn't. Myers, Garland, Besser. Obvious, right? We don't even need to get into it. Everyone knows that. And then a fourth name, which is Beauvillier. Now, Beauvillier is worth keeping in mind here because Beauvillier is faster than Garland and Besser, right? He has more playoff experience than Garland and Besser. He scored at a 20-goal, 50-point pace after being acquired from the New York Islanders. So he played well down the stretch in a way that would lend itself more naturally to like potential playoff teams or whatever, th- seeing him as like an asset, a value add. And most importantly, he's expiring. Besser has two years remaining. Garland has three. Yeah. At the end of the day, in a world where this type of player, the, the like – Middle six, fringe top six scoring winger is really hard to move, particularly when they cost a lot and have term on them. Who's the easiest of those guys to shed? It's Beauvillier, and it's not by a little bit. It's with a bullet. Like, with a bullet, you can move Beauvillier more easily than you can move Garland and Besser. I don't think this team would want to do that. All things being equal, they'd rather keep the faster player who's expiring. But do we have to be mindful of the possibility that this team could find it difficult to move money and may have to jump to plan B, C, D, which could include things they don't want to do, like buyouts, and could include trading players they'd ideally prefer not to trade, like a Beauvillier. I I think we have to keep that in mind. That has to be part of our consideration set as we go into this offseason because you know it could be for the team. The other thing, and we'll we'll continue this conversation because we've got to take a quick break here and get to Tristan Nielsen on the other side, but you know, you mentioned the article uh, that you and Harmon have up at The Athletic, right? Like, who's staying, who's going? And I thought it was very striking that the only player you listed in the likely moving on category is Travis Dermott, who's an RFA who barely played this year. And I think that just goes to show like the work to if you really wanted to do significant turnover on this roster, it would take so much work and you'd have to bite some bullets to do it. Like it's just not we've talked about this a lot, but it's just not an easy roster to disassemble, which means it's also not an easy roster to add a ton of pieces to, right? Because you have to do one before you do the other. And again, it that to me speaks to we're look. We're not going to be looking at as much turnover, as much surgery as I think a lot of fans might have expected, might have hoped for. But we can keep this conversation going. You can get your thoughts in six fifty, six fifty, unless the team's willing to pay for it. And and again, 
don't ignore that possibility. This team has shown us, no matter what they say, no matter how conservative their commentary, this team has shown us with their actions what their priorities are for next season, and they're to make it. They're to be a playoff team. Tristan Nielsen, Abbotsford Canucks forward. Excited for this one. The Abbey Canucks start their playoff push tomorrow. He joins the show next. Canucks Talk, Sportsnet 650. Welcome back to Canucks Talk here on Sportsnet 650. Jamie Dodd, Thomas Drance, live from the Kintech studio. 650-650 is the Dunbar Lumber text line. Dunbar Lumber with three stores to serve you in Ladner on Bridge Street or Dunbar Lumber Express at Ladner Center or Arbutus in Vancouver online at DunbarLumber.com. Playoff hockey coming to Abbotsford. The Abbotsford Canucks begin their playoffs tomorrow Tickets available, so you have your chance to go watch the Abbotsford Canucks in the Calder Cup playoffs. Uh, and now joining us to talk about that, talk about his season uh, a little bit, he is Abbotsford Canucks forward Tristan Nielsen. Tristan, thanks very much for making some time for us. How are you? I'm good. How are you guys? Uh, we're doing really well. I know um, our, a lot of our listeners are really excited about uh, the Abbotsford Canucks getting the playoffs started. We've already had some texts in saying that they're going to be there and you know, they're, they're planning to lose their voice from cheering so loud. How excited are you to to get this first taste of playoff games in Abbotsford in front of the Abbotsford fans? Oh, I'm very excited. I think uh, the atmosphere has been great all year round, but going into the playoffs, I think it's just going to add a little more intensity and I think it's going to be uh, really fun to play in front of. Tristan, will you give us a sense of what it means to you? I mean, you've been there since the birth of this American League franchise. We know how challenging last season was with uh, COVID, the floods, everything else, and then, of course, how, how it ended. What's it going to mean to you when you step on the ice in a playoff atmosphere in that building tomorrow night? I mean, it's kind of what we've been looking forward to. I mean, last year, obviously, we didn't get home ice advantage, so... I think the guys that are returning are, are really, really excited about this opportunity. Obviously, I think it's been on a lot of people's minds, and I think everyone wanted to bring playoffs to Abbotsford last year, and this is our year to do it. Yeah, and you know, you obviously playing uh, a lot of your WHL hockey with the Giants. Like You had a chance to go on a, a pretty special run with the Giants uh, in the WHL playoffs. You saw what uh, you know fans in the lower mainland can be like in the playoffs in that environment. I mean, how special is it for you to have gone right from the Giants in Langley to starting your AHL career with the, uh, with the Canucks in Abbotsford? Uh, it's been very special. I mean, obviously even being just a BC kid playing for the Giants was uh, – very exciting for me and then to be able to play pro in bc and have my family so close and some friends and stuff in town it's uh it's an unbelievable experience um makes me very happy your uh your offensive production took a big jump this year for abbotsford one of the leaders on the team actually in terms of points scored this year what clicked for you what went right to help you take that that next step forward in production uh, i think a lot of it came with confidence coming into the season. Uh, I had a really good off season and uh, I learned from a lot of the guys last year on the team. So I think just uh, the big off season and then coming into camp, feeling more confident, more pro ready that I think that's kind of what helped me. Tristan, think it's fair to say there's some pest in your game. Um, is this a time of year that, you know, suits what you do best? Well, yeah, yeah, I definitely think uh, I have a little bit of pest and some stubbornness in me, and 
Uh, I try not to let it creep into uh, my everyday life, but it definitely does. How? How? You got to give us a uh, sense of how, Tristan. No, I think I'm just a disturber. I, I like living in conflict. I think it's fun. <laughs> pulling, uh, pulling the sandwich artist's shirt over their head at Subway. Like, how, how's this manifest itself? Oh, uh, you know, just little petty things. I, just, <laughs> I think it's hilarious when you can do things that just that don't make people too mad, but it just if you do it just enough, it really triggers them. <laughs> do, do do your teammates think it's hilarious too? Most most of the time, I'm guessing. Uh, no, sometimes they get really mad at me. <laughs> um, Tristan, as you've graduated the pro ranks over the past couple of years, uh, that there's like a dark art, right? There's a dark art to to being a pest in terms of using it to draw a key penalty for your team, right? Not not take too many uh, yourself, right? There's like a fine line you have to walk. Did it? Did it? Was it an adjustment figuring out how to play that game effectively at the American League versus what you'd done previously in the dub? Uh, yeah, I mean, the way I looked at it, it was kind of in the dub, you know, if you were being a disturb, uh, disturbance and stuff, but you took a penalty, you could kind of being a player that I was like, I could kind of make up for it and be like more offensive when I came back out where in this league, chances are, if you give the other team a power play, like even Calgary, that they're, they're probably going to capitalize on it. And those goals are huge and you don't want to put your team down. So I've, I really had to adjust and. I've kind of always looked at it like if I can be a pest, but I can, at worst, I take someone with me to the box, then it's even. So then it's just like, ah, oh, okay, two minutes. Still being a pest, but I just try not to, to put the team down. I'd rather go in and bring someone with me kind of thing. Now, I use the word pest to be polite, but would you have objected if I'd used the word rat? No. no I think, <laughs> Let's go. I think I do some things. I mean, at the end of the day, like <laughs> – I mean, Vancouver fans might not like this, but um, Brad Marchand is, like, my favorite player. Like, I love him. I love looking up to him. Like, I, I think he's an unbelievable hockey player. But, yeah, he is a rat. But I think it makes him who he is because it puts a little bit of fear into people's eyes, and you just never know. Like, you're going to go and hit him. Next thing you know, you might be face first into the boards because he ducked you. Like, <laughs> it's just so unpredictable. Or he's just going to walk around you because you, you ease up. Like, it's it just adds, like, yeah, I mean, I don't agree with everything he's done, but I, I kind of like the rat lifestyle. Well, I, I think of another uh, <laughs> another BC guy, Vancouver Giant alumni, like Brendan Gallagher in his career. I, I'm pretty sure he would have embraced, you know, playing with a little bit of that rat style, right? And he, he did pretty well for himself at the NHL level, too. Oh, yeah. I trained with him in the summers and stuff here mm. in Vancouver, so I've gotten to know him pretty well. But, yeah, just watching him growing up, I mean, he's always – he's always someone's always trying to take his head off, it seems like. <laughs> Tristan, you know – when you got into the pro ranks to play the way you do, right? Because, you know, Rat's got negative connotations because it implies you can't back it up, right? And in Marchand's case, he can because he scores and he's an elite player in the NHL. And in your case, you can because you're really good. But when you got to the AHL and started playing your game against pro players as opposed to in the dub, was there any concern about being able to do it um, at your size, and did you have to adjust your game, your angles, the way you went into the wall? Like, what what adjustments were there to continue to be physically assertive the way you are uh, at the pro ranks? Well, I definitely think some of it's just picking your battles. Mm. I mean, even in junior, I would say 
for the most part, if you see a big guy, they're probably still not fully developed in the sense that they're they're not like a man yet. Where in this league, chances are you see a big guy, he's probably 30 years old. <laughs> so he's, he's fully developed and stuff. So just like going into things like that, you just kind of pick your battles. But more often than not, there's just like little things you can do to to manipulate how you want him to kind of react. So you can find like little triggers, like if you kind of hit their hips a little more versus trying mm. to hit their upper body, it'll turn them a little bit. And then there's a chance that they fall kind of thing. Right. Yeah. Well, so I-, I guess like for me, it's just been trying to find guys weaknesses and try to like pick my battle. Mm. Well, and I know that summer group Gallagher, I know Troy Stetcher works out with that group too. Uh, there's a lot of guys who earn their living in the NHL level as undersized guys who play thankless roles. We we know where Brendan Gallagher scores from, and, and and it's a place usually reserved for the six foot four gentleman. And we know how Troy Stetcher plays the game. Uh, and likewise, mo- most players who fit his mold are five six inches taller. Um, are, are there things you've been able to pick up from players like that skating with them in terms of figuring out how to play bigger than your listed size? Yeah, I mean, it really all comes down to is if you want the puck more than them. Like, uh, you see him competing. I mean, he'll take a high stick and fight through it, mm. and he'll be bleeding, and he'll <laughs> smile at them. Like, it's just like a, a different level of, um, of like, compete, I guess mm. is the word. In conversation with uh, Abbotsford Canucks forward Tristan Nielsen here on Canucks Talk, uh, we've talked a lot about it. I know uh, even you know members of the Canucks front office have talked a lot about the job that Jeremy Carlton has come has done coming in and stepping in as the head coach. What's your relationship like with uh, Carlton, and you know what's your perspective on how he's coached the team this year? I, I think he's a terrific coach. I I think he. He plays players in positions that uh, allows them to succeed. And honestly, right out of the gate, I, I was happy with him. I mean, for me, I've always found it hard to, to gain coaches' trust. And for some reason, he put his trust into me. And I I think he's given me a lot of opportunities here to, to show what kind of player I am. And I think it's paying off. And I'm I'm really excited to see more the the winning side of him because every coach wants to win in playoffs. You know, that, the word you use there, trust, that's something we've heard Canucks general manager Patrick Alvin really emphasize, right? He wants to build a trusting relationship with his players at the NHL level. For you as a player, what does it mean for a coach to have trust in you? What does that look like? And how, what, what kind of effect does it have on your game? Um, I'd say, like, trust is more if you're in, like, a situation, like, you're going to dump the puck in, but you mess up. And but nine times out of ten you do it properly, but that one time you mess up. I think if a coach doesn't trust you, he'll use that as an excuse to sit you, kind of thing. Mm-hmm. Like you make a, a mistake that you usually do right every time, where he would kind of look at it as in, you know, he made a mistake. It happens. We're gonna give him another opportunity. And you know what? Some games might not happen. Like I might be dumping a puck in wrong five out of ten times and that's when I deserve to be sat and that's when my trust deserves to be taken that's when I deserve to be yelled at you know so I just think like little things like that is kind of the trust and then also doing what they ask I mean if at the end of the day if he if he wants you just to fly around and get in on a four check and try to hit everything and he doesn't care about production or anything like that then that's what you got to do and that's you do that role for him and he's going to look out for you and put you in other positions kind of thing Tristan, obviously, as a player, you can tell when you come back to the bench and, and have made some of the mistakes you just described. 
can you also tell when a coach believes that you got a shot like Jeremy does with you? Like, does that, can you tell, does it make a difference? Yeah. I mean, it always makes a difference just more so in my own mindset. Like, mm. you know, I, I know I got a coach that, that likes me as a player. So kind of just gives me that little extra motivation. And, you know, if, if you're going, you're going to get played that night. So that's kind of like, it's, it's just like a really good confidence booster more than anything. Tristan, we know that this club, this organization has really put a premium on filling players' day-to-day experience, right, with um, expert hockey people, whether it's Henrik and Daniel, whether it's Yogi, whether it's uh, uh, Brader, right? Um, what's, yep. that, wh- what's that translated into for players down in Abbotsford in terms of influence in the day-to-day, skills work, skating work? What's it been like to work with all those folks this season? Uh, honestly, like I, I was fortunate. I obviously worked with Yogi and in, in junior and stuff, and I'm really mm. close with his oldest kid. Um, so I, I get lucky and I get to skate with him all summer long. So for him, I mean, everyone just thinks that's cool. Cause he kind of puts everything in different perspectives and it's all game like situations. And then with Brader, I mean, even when I just watch him skate, I'm like, Oh my goodness. Like it literally just looks like he's floating. And <laughs> I, I went and I went and saw him this summer for a week. And I, I think it was the best thing that ever happened to my skating. Like he, I think he did a terrific job with me, but he makes very noticeable changes that you wouldn't think of. Like, it's kind of like an outside the box change in my opinion. Mm. And then with the Sedins, I mean, every single time they're out there, it's, they, they always teach you something. They always show you something. But for me, it's, like it, Sass, Sasser even said it. He uh, when he came in his first ice time with us back in Abbotsford, he mm-hmm. he was like, "The Sedins are just like out here. Like it's still like <laughs> mesmerizing just to have them on the ice." I mean, I, I watched them my whole life. I mean, my they're my <laughs> they're my mom's favorite players. So it's, it's just like, kind of cool. <laughs> what does your mom feel about you having Marchand as a favorite player? That sounds like familial conflict, my friend. My mom doesn't watch that much hockey. Doesn't know who is. Uh, hey, Tristan, one of the, you know, so often the really good teams in the AHL, they tend to have a lot of like veterans, as you said, you know, the 30 year old guy, the 30 year old, really big guy who's played, you know, 300, 400 games in the A and some games in the NHL as well. And certainly, you know, you guys have veterans on the team, but there's also a really strong contingent of players right in your age range, right? In that kind of 20 to 23 age range that play a really important role play big minutes or key players on the team what's it like to just be kind of a part of a group like that that carries such a big burden uh, for a winning AHL team um I think a lot of it comes down to like you said it best but like we we do have a lot of leaders in our room and I mean Chase Waters he's he's my age he's so he's 23 and he's uh he's the captain yeah. like and I mean uh, I voted leaps captain my whole life and junior. And every time I ever played with him, like, I think we just have a really good group of young guys that, that want to work for each other and aren't afraid to step in for each other. And I think that kind of is the winning culture. I mean, you, you, uh, you more so just want to have the respect from your buddy sitting beside you to know that he's willing to do anything for you. And I think that's what we have. And I think, um, it starts with our older guys, but I think it it really is thrived upon a, upon our younger guys. It, it, is Chase just twenty three going on thirty, Tristan? <laughs> 
No, he's just an unbelievable kid. <laughs> he's, he's so well respected by coaches, staff, uh, players. Like, it's you can't find a flaw with the kid. <laughs> it's, so you're not like walking in and he's reading the Wall Street Journal, and, like talking about no, his portfolio. No. no, he's a fun person to be around. <laughs> what What's it been like? One thing that's sort of interesting. There's a lot of AHL teams where you've got a, a bunch of guys who are on. Um, AHL contracts, NHL pro deals. And, you know, those guys are sometimes like 27 to 30 and have played 400 AHL games. And for your team, a lot of like sort of that core group that you know is going to be consistent and soaking up big minutes, no matter who's up, no matter who's down, no matter what the injury situation is, um, you know, it's, it's guys like you and Chase, like younger players. What, what's that been like to go through the last two seasons sort of together and, and kind of grow into core guys for this team? Um, obviously, I mean, all of us being young and still being on A deals, I mean, we all want to move on. We always want that next contract. We, we want our shot at the next level. And I think that kind of keeps us hungry and humble. Um, because we're not on those contracts. So I think it just allows for us to, to kind of be the workhorses of the group. Mm. And, I mean, you look at Gatcom coming in. I mean, he's going to play a huge role for us in, in playoffs. And, I mean, I'm lucky enough to live with the guy, so it's kind of fun living with him because we kind of just push each other. And we, it's just like you kind of want to try to one-up the other guy because you're always all fighting for that contract. But we all have the respect for each other to realize that the team's bigger than the contract. Mm. You know, as you said, you're you're looking for that contract. You're looking for that shot at the NHL level. One interesting thing about this season, a lot of guys that were big parts of the Abbotsford team had the chance, uh, who are on NHL contracts, to go play with the Vancouver Canucks and, and really contribute and acquit themselves well. What does that do for you and your motivation when you see guys you're playing with and practicing with every day get that shot and succeed uh, at the NHL level? Oh, I mean, I'm happy for them. I mean, you look at uh, Phil DiGiuseppe's mine and Mark's neighbor. So, I mean, he's been gone for how long? And they, they're scared to put him on waivers right yep. now. You might get picked up. He did so well up there. So you, you got to be really happy for them because it's everyone gets their opportunity eventually. It's just when. So, and it's he's taken advantage of his opportunity this year. Tristan, really appreciate the time. Uh, I know everyone's excited for the playoffs tomorrow. We've got people uh, from, as you said, you're a BC guy from uh, from Fort St. John. We've got people from Fort St. John texting in, from Dawson's Creek texting in, giving you a shout-out for repping Northern BC as well. So we really appreciate it, and best of luck in the playoffs. Awesome. Thank you, guys. Yeah, thanks for your time, Tristan. That is Abbotsford Canucks forward Tristan Nielsen joining us here. Uh, very generous with his time the day before the Abbotsford Canucks oh, begin awesome. their playoff push. And, and what a likable guy. Yeah. He, we play, are, like, the, the, he plays like he sounds. Yeah. You know what I mean? Like, this guy plays hard, and, and truly he is going to get a look. Like, he is going to get a look, um, whether it's in Vancouver or elsewhere. This guy's going to get an entry-level deal. He's going to get an NHL contract. He scores. He competes. He's got speed. Like, it was interesting to hear him talk about his work with Mackenzie Braid and how that was almost life-changing for him, given that one of Nielsen's best assets is his skating ability. Yeah. But but this guy's going to get an NHL deal at some point down the line. No question about it. A lot of talent, but more than that, um, you know, him describing the compete of Gallagher, right? Like, the way he sees it, the the way he works, his his work rate, through the roof. This kid's got a shot, no question. Well, you it. understand that he understands, like, exactly – 
what he needs to do to be successful. Yep. And he has the flexibility, as you, as you know, as he even said there, right? Like sometimes the coach is going to ask you to produce. Sometimes the coach is going to say, don't worry about that. Just go out there, be a pest, hit whatever moves, forecheck, right? He has the ability to kind of adapt to what the team needs. And, you know, we're getting like people are really fired up by that interview and texting in and, I mean, this is a, this is your chance to get in on the Tristan Nielsen ground floor here, right? Like, because it's going to be a story going into training camp. Think, We're going to be watching. I, I think Maybe just for floor, us, the ground floor is already. Yeah, that's fair. Yeah, we've already, we've already, <laughs> we're, we've, we're already up on the tenth. We're we're walking slowly. <laughs> But uh, but we're going to get there. Yeah, we're waiting to see what happens next uh, for Tristan Nielsen. But really fantastic uh, to, to speak with him. And yeah, tickets still available uh, for the Abbotsford Canucks playoff push beginning in Abbotsford uh, tomorrow. You can uh, you can still get your tickets uh, for the three game series. How quaint is it that I was like, ah, I won't describe him as a rat off the bat. And then he's like, yeah, I live that pest lifestyle. It's like, OK, he's like, he's like I'm a disturber. <laughs> Sorry, he actually. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, good. Just going to leave a word out there. But you know what? Solid level yep. of discretion, right? Discretion's the better part of valor. Yeah. Um, sorry, and I actually legitimately use the term rat lifestyle. Rat lifestyle, which, um, you know, he's like uh, rat lifestyle, like under a chef's hat, controlling him into making excellent <laughs> French food. Is that a good, better movie reference? Yeah, that's fine. <laughs> <laughs> it's fine. Okay. Um. But, uh, yeah, and the other thing that, uh, you know, as he said, just, like, the novelty, and obviously it's not just novelty, there's a real benefit to it, but there is also novelty of, like, skating regularly with the Sedins. And, you know, he's a BC guy, so yeah. it's, like, has an extra level for him, but as he said, like, Max Sasson comes in and is like, wait, seriously? These guys are just, like, <laughs> hanging out at practice with us? This is just how we do like, it? what? Yeah, That's just cool. going to be a feature of, of how things go w- Would you around prefer here? to Rizzo the Rat reference, by the way? Uh, yeah, probably. <laughs> Fair enough. Yeah. Yeah, that would have worked better. I'll use that next time. Yeah, uh, thank you. Thank you for doing quality control <laughs> checks for me. Uh, anyways, really enjoyed talking to Tristan Nielsen. Um, looking forward to see what Abbotsford yeah, that, can do in the playoffs. That was awesome. Oh, he's great. Yeah, fantastic. Fun. Yeah, um, and uh, he's going to be a big part of their playoff run. Like, if this team goes deep, you're going to get a Tristan Nielsen clutch moment, guaranteed. Yeah, well, he was fourth on the team in scoring. And, like, you know, there's guys coming up and down, and I understand that. I, I get that that's not always, like, a perfect representation of who the most important offensive players are, but he was certainly up there in terms of their most important offensive players, and they're going to lean on him. Well, you know, and as I always say when we talk about player production, right, it's like 41 and 64 at his age, It's not. it's not that he's – an offensive scorer poised to be a 80 point, 60 point, 40 point guy in the NHL. But his production is high enough to suggest that he can be a useful role player at mm-hmm. the NHL, right? Like even the guys who fill roles in the NHL dominate lower levels, right? And and Nielsen's like a year away from being at that level. Plus he's got the sort of game considering his speed and physical edge that probably translates better to a depth role in the NHL than some of the guys who outscored him, for example, in Abbotsford. I always want to say Utica. I got to stop it. Yeah. Just the Ab- Abbotsford Canucks. Just it just does, does get confusing when you're just like trying to say the Canucks versus the Canucks. You have to specify the NHL Canucks, the AHL Canucks. Uh, but anyways, uh, we will get back to the NHL playoffs. Shana Goldman of The Athletic uh, and the Too Many Men podcast will join us next. We'll get her takeaways from last night and what she is watching for uh, when the remaining first round series get going tonight. You've got it on Canucks Talk Sportsnet 650. 
Hitting the most important topics for Vancouver sports fans. The People's Show with Vic Nazar. Subscribe and download the show on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome back to Canucks Talk here on Sportsnet 650 with Jamie Dodd and Thomas Drance. Canucks Talk brought to you by Avenue Machinery and Douglas Lake Equipment, keeping you at the top of your game, now found together online at DLEAMC.com. We are coming to you live from the Kintech studio, Kintech Footwear and Orthotics, Canada's favorite orthotics provider, supported by over 2,500 five-star Google reviews. Find your perfect fit. At Kintech.net, 650-650 is the Dunbar Lumber text line. Shayna Goldman is going to join us momentarily here from The Athletic and the Too Many Men podcast uh, to get her thoughts on the Stanley Cup playoffs. First round getting underway last night. The remainder of the series get going tonight. you got the Rangers and the Devils at 4 o'clock. Lightning and the Leafs at 4.30, Jets and Golden Knights at 6.30, which you'll be able to hear here on the station, and then the Kraken and the Avalanche rounding things off at 7 o'clock. Joining us now to talk about all of that, uh, she is Shayna Goldman from The Athletic and the Too Many Men podcast. Shayna, thank you as always for your time. Are you as excited as we are that we're finally here? The Stanley Cup playoffs are underway. Oh, yeah. I'm hyped. Um, I think night one was a great example of, like, what we're going to get this postseason. I'm here for it. I'll take this every single night. It was great. The staggering of the games. Yes. uh, Perfect. No notes, finally. Uh, It was so great to actually get to watch a bit of everything instead of feeling like we're also overwhelmed at once because every single game is being thrown at you at the same time and just, like, screaming at you. And, like, sure, there's overlaps for parts of periods, but it was really good. We got to see a bit of everything. And it delivered. What were your key takeaways in terms of style of play from night one? I know it's a little early, but these games felt heavy to me. You know what? It was it was really interesting too because I, I think we got a lot of like fast paced games uh, so far. Look, the takeaway we have from the Islanders games it's going to be a slot fest it's just what we all could have projected that's how they are stylistically i'm hoping there's a little bit more pop moving forward but i think that was you know a good sample of what we might see this series but the pace otherwise i think was really exciting you know florida boston brought it there was a lot of speed a lot of skill a lot of lateral plays and it was nice to see a team like boston like making those plays in the postseason sometimes teams get so simple and it just felt like the teams that know they have skill, the Oilers, you know, the Bruins, the Panthers, they were leaning into that and trying to be aggressive with their offense and with those plays instead of dumbing it down. So I think that was like a key takeaway for me from night one. In terms of the uh, in the Western Conference, right, two teams lose in overtime, the Oilers and the Stars. Which of those teams do you think should be more concerned being down 0-1 after dropping their games in overtime? Ooh, good question. Um, I'm going to say Dallas. So the Oilers were down one nothing last year, and I know this isn't last year because the Kings are a better team than last year, but so are the Oilers. Um, I think that the Oilers are a team that could use the challenges, and that's going to help them forward, right? I don't think the Oilers can have it too easy because I don't think that team should be playing on their heels going, well, it's okay, we have Connor McDavid and Leon Dreisaitl, and he's actually healthy this time around. Like, I think any challenge thrown their way is a good thing right now. For the Stars, there's a bit more concern, and it's less because they lost and more because of who they lost. You know, 
Joe Pavelski has been a key part of that top line. And it feels like the Stars are finally getting away from being that one-line team. Like last year, what, what everyone was like, well, they have three good forwards, yeah. a great defense, and a breakout goalie. That is it going for them. And this year, it's like, okay, there's there's some balance here. There's a solid middle six here, a very defensive fourth line. You know, even the defense looks better. Like, there's a lot to like about them stylistically, that they separated themselves from the wild and that they actually have five-on-five five offense. That is the difference between these two teams that are so closely matched. You just lost a key cog in it, so they have to figure out a way to move up a player to play in Pavelski's spot, try to fill that role, and yes, Robertson's the driver of that line, but all three play such you know essential parts of making everything click, and they have for two and a half years now, so replacing that and now not sending all the other lines out of whack, which you finally have. Yeah, it's that domino effect, right? As you said, like the improved depth so important for them. And not only are you hurting your first line, you're also hurting your depth in the process. So what did you think about the the Dumba hit on Pavelski that ends with Pavelski leaving the game? I think the end result is the worst part of it, right? The way Pavelski's head hit the ice, absolutely positively terrible. Um, I think it was a late hit. I, that That's like my biggest takeaway. For me, It's there's a penalty there, whether it's a minor or a major penalty. I think that there should be some sort of penalty there. I think if you give a major, maybe then there isn't any supplemental discipline. Um, but I think the way, the timing of it, I think Dumba could have stopped himself from hitting Pavelski. He he released the puck. There's ways, not for nothing. I get it. The game is fast. And everyone's going to say, well, the game's so fast. It develops quickly. These players at times, sure, can't stop. But these are the best players at the best stage. So, yes, I'm sure they have the ability to replays and the ability to stop themselves or try, you know, they don't have to fully commit to the hit. He could have pulled himself back and maybe there still would have been a collision, but a little bit differently. But I think, I think the end result is amplifying a situation more than anything else. You know, like I don't, we can nitpick how dirty or not the hit was. It was the lateness for me that should have made it a penalty. Um, And it's really unfortunate that that's the result of it. Uh, you know, if you want to get like nitpicky, you could be well, technically it was legal otherwise outside of the lateness of it. But then there's a the conversation to have like what's legal versus what should be legal. What I hate using the word clean hit because it's hard to call a hit clean when you see the end result. Like there's a difference. Yeah. L- lateness should be sufficient to, to be like that is not a legal hit. Like that's not a clean hit. I don't know what I don't know how anyone can see it as a clean hit when it's that late. Yeah. Yeah, that's that's it. That's it for me right there. And that's it, that was like the biggest part of it. And I think that anyone, you know, what that's why, like, I like the review process. I, I think that's one of the smartest things the NHL did. And ironically, it comes off the heels of the whole Pavelski thing years ago, right, from Vegas, San Jose. But having that ability to just call it as a major, to give yourself that ability to to sit there and really look at it from all angles because the game happens quickly and you might not have seen it and you might just see the end result and jump. But I don't know how you come out of that with no penalty for the lateness. Like I, I, I legitimately, like you had the chance to review it with all the angles and we had, I'm sure just some of them and we're looking at it going, that's a late hit, right? Yeah. Shana, despite losing Pavelski, I'm watching that game and it looked like the Stars just absolutely had it in control, right? I mean, Rope Hints hits the post. Brock Faber saves everyone's bacon. Dadnov uh, with a chance that's only stopped because it hits Gustafson's knob, uh, or the knob of his stick anyway, excuse me. Um, 
do you take anything positive from that? Because I almost came away from it being like, you know, I, I picked Dallas on a knife's edge in this series, but having watched how these teams actually played, I'm I'm actually feeling more confident about Dallas winning this despite the result in game one. Yeah, like the thing for Minnesota, like the saving grace for Minnesota would be extending the series because that greatens, you know, there's a greater chance that Joel Connect comes back and I think he's so important to their success. I think he's the key to giving them two balanced scoring lines, mm-hmm. and I don't think they have that if he's not in the lineup. Um, and it's funny, it's Hartman to do it, where you know we can criticize the Wild Center, and here he is scoring the game winner, even though he looked injured too. For me, I, the entire game I'm going, Dallas has the edge, no question about it. You see some really key, key defensive plays. The favor one you mentioned, Brodeen had a couple really good plays too. Like the it, It's literally cliched up, but a game of inches, and it was. Um, but after that second penalty kill, you know, sometimes you watch a game and you watch the momentum swings and it's like a shot's just going to go through the other end and Ottinger's going to allow a goal against. Like, it could have been one that really wasn't pretty. It could have been nice one. I didn't care. The second they killed that second penalty, I'm like, Minnesota's winning this game and they're winning it very soon. Like, it just all of a sudden to me had that feeling, even though Dallas had that game. So it was very lucky for Minnesota that it worked out the way it did. In conversation with Shana Goldman here on Canucks Talk, Sportsnet 650. And just before we get to uh, tonight's slate of games, the other four series getting underway, Bruins beat the Panthers 3-1 without Patrice Bergeron in the lineup. And look, we all know, know that the Bruins are a juggernaut. They're going to be an extraordinarily tough out in the playoffs. But I mean, winning without Patrice Bergeron, it kind of just underlines the ridiculous uh, nature of that Bruins team for me, Shana. Yeah, absolutely. And the thing was, like, the Bruins weren't as good defensively as we expect them to be. The Panthers, um, really heading into the third period, looked like the better team at times. You know, they were creating a lot of five-on-five. And you could even see the matchups of, like, I think through, through, through two periods, it was Barkoff primarily against Hampus Lindholm. Barkoff's line had the clear edge in that time. But the Panthers still didn't show, I think, enough pop. And despite some of the big plays that they had and despite, you know, leading in shots and scoring chances – and this is without Bergeron. Now you add him back into the fold, and it's, you know, potentially devastating. And on the penalty, uh, power play, the Panthers' power play still doesn't look great, and you're going up against such an elite Bruins penalty kill, and then you add Bergeron back in. That's an advantage anyone in the league could want, right? Like, he is one of the best all-around players still. And it's, it's not, oh, well, he's good for, you know, a 37-year-old. Like, no, he's legitimately one of the best compared to players in their prime right now. Um, so it just shows how good this, this team is. One of the most noticeable lines for Boston is their third line with Tyler Bertuzzi on it. And you're like, yeah, this is this is the team to beat, like rightfully so. So it's going to be a really interesting series going forward if the Florida can, you know, claw back at all. Other than Boston, who I think we all should agree was the deadline winner in terms of upping their ceiling – um, I sort of have the Kings as like next up. And and I felt like we saw that with the performance of Corpusalo, not to mention Gavrikov um, last night. What, what were your thoughts on how some of the big deadline acquisitions fared in game one of the playoffs? Yeah, that, that's a good call with Corpusalo and with Gavrikov. And Gavrikov, someone who you really have to try to like extrapolate his value outside of Columbus. And this year was such a tough year because all of the injuries forced him to play out of his depth. But if you go back to when he was slotted appropriately and maybe even not last year, but the year before that, 
you know, there was a good defense in there. So in the right situation, in the right system, like there's a lot of potential. And um, so that's a good call there. But the one for me, there were two, uh, Nick Bustad and Matias Ekholm. I think they were such good ads by the Oilers. And I'm not one to typically applaud the Oilers. Uh, quite <laughs> the opposite. I never have a good thing to say about them. Even Connor McDavid, I will find fault because it's too much fun to make fun of the Oilers. Um, but I, I always have questions about their management group. And it does seem like Brad Holland, um, Ken Holland's son, legitimately is having some sort of influence there. I know he's been working a bit more with data, but by those picks, it does feel like, you know, there's a more innovative approach going on versus what the Edmonton Oilers have done for years now under Ken Holland and obviously before that too. Uh, Ekholm looked great last night. I think the way he's balanced out Evan Bouchard's game because it hasn't been a great season for him has been excellent. And to have the shutdown ability of Nick Bukestad, he's a really, really, really good depth player. And I think that's a word that sometimes you hear depth player and that's someone that is just like a replacement level really one-dimensional fourth liner, fringe forward, like, you know, this is a legitimately good third-line player who managed on the worst of teams, so now you give him a little bit more support and see what he can do, and it's even better. Uh, of the series starting tonight, I, I know I'm especially interested in the two Eastern Conference series, Rangers-Devils and then Lightning-Leafs both get going. Let's start with the uh, the New York series between the Devils and the Rangers like should be a really exciting offensively oriented series. What do you expect to be the separating factor between these two teams? Um, I I do wonder a bit about like experience and it's tough because like the Rangers were the inexperienced team last year and it didn't really phase them, but the devils are, and the devils are going in as an inexperienced team, trying to play a different way from what generally is successful, right? They are not the type of team that's going to cycle the puck the entire time and really forecheck and, play that heavy style and that's fine for them that's made them successful and in today's game you have to evolve you can't always you know the league's getting away from that heavy hockey style especially in the playoffs and you know there are players who last year really stepped up in the postseason after years of struggling in that kind of environment so it's going to be a matter of whether they can play that style and if they can play to their strengths do they make it a track meet that the rangers can't keep up with the rangers got better at the deadline this is one of the best iterations of the rangers roster but at the end of the day, Tarasenko and Kane are not very fast at this point in their career. And that's okay. They're not great defensively at this point in their career. And that's also okay because you can put in the lineup a certain left spot. And if you can be the one that's driving play and, and you set the tempo, it can work for you. But if the Devils are setting the tempo, I think it's going to create a problem for the Rangers. But that's a big if. We don't know if they're going to be able to play to their strengths. The Rangers, you know, if you look back to what they did last postseason against the Penguins, they really tried to grind it out and play that heavy style it almost lost them a series. You know, they got lucky to how it worked out, how it did, and how things started changing game six and seven. It's, it's, you know, in today's game, I don't think that's the way to win. But against an experienced team like the Penguins, they kind of have that fortitude to know, it's fine, keep playing, you will keep skating circles around them, it will work out in your favor. Of course, it didn't, but that was a Crosby injury, and that's, you know, a different situation. For the Devils, there isn't that same experience level on that team, so I wonder if they panic at all and try to change their game and kind of dumb themselves down when they shouldn't be doing that. So that's like what I'm watching as like the key to this series. Sort of an analogous, but my, my concern with the Rangers against the Devils is I'm just not sure. I'm not sure if they have enough two-way intelligence up front to really hit New Jersey's fastball. Like that's sort of what I'm watching here. 
given that, you know, aside from Zabanajad and, and Barkley Gaudreau, like, I know who I'd list as, like, a two-way difference maker up front. Like, Heedle's probably next up. Um, whereas the Devils, I can name a lot of guys. <laughs> I can name a lot of guys that I'm confident can drive things. Um, what are the chances, in your view, that the Rangers just struggle to hit New Jersey's fastball here? That's that's fair. I mean, I would I would say Vincent Trocheck, someone can, but like mm. you know, he is hurt by two players who struggle. I don't want to say Panarin struggles in his own zone. I don't think that's fair. I just don't think he's some like defensive stalwart. I think he's fine, but I think that you add a weak link defensively on the line and it'll drag him down because I don't think he has that two way pop to like you know keep his head above water himself. But you have Trocheck and you do have Chris Kreider, who's really worked on his defensive game the last couple of years. Um, you can see that's why he's killing penalties now too, and he has the speed to really turn plays around. Um, but that's it's entirely possible that happens, and this is where it's going to get really interesting because the Rangers generally speaking, from last year's playoffs, do dumb their game down, not just getting physical, but not making risky plays, right? Cut out anything stupid at the blue line. Don't be making those risks. Don't go for those lateral plays. And the team against a team like the Devils, you can dig your heels in even more and say that you need to do that because if there's an opportunity to pick the puck away, they have the speed to just take it, go to the other end, and see what happens. Um so they're going to need Igor Shostakovich to be pretty much perfect if that's the case. But it's going to be interesting to see if the Rangers do play that way or if they could figure out a way to play their game and execute it so perfectly that they don't need to be as strong defensively. But that, I think, is a pipe dream for that roster. I don't think that they're strong enough in 5-on-5. Five five. I don't think they have the adaptability behind the bench at 5-on-5. Five five. You know, like, I just think they'll go a little more risk-averse to avoid needing to be as good on both ends of the ice. The other big series in the Eastern Conference that gets going, Tampa Bay versus Toronto, rematch of the first round last year. Slash Toronto versus themselves. Yes, yes. And, you know, everyone, like Toronto's the heavy favorite anyways. If this, if this was two, like, generic teams that didn't have the respective histories attached to them, I think they'd be even more heavy favorites in this series, given how they performed versus how Tampa has kind of struggled recently. Like, is this it? Is this, is this the year Toronto breaks through and the, the bottom kind of falls out for Tampa? In theory, on paper, yeah, absolutely. In reality, probably not. Um, this is this Tampa Bay team is different from the last two years. They're a bit worse defensively. Victor Hedman's not Victor Hedman. Um, the big deadline acquisition they made, who is someone I don't think was going to be the difference maker, but would be someone who would like step up and have like the game seven goal to seal it, and everyone would shut up about how Tanner Janot is the wrong person to acquire. Like it just had that vibe. Um, you don't have. Like, there's a lot of things working against Tampa Bay. I think that the Leafs have to win in six games or fewer. If it goes to game seven, I just don't – it's part of that, like, will over skill thing, and I wonder how much they've taken from that series. The way the Lightning played against Toronto and against Florida, too, the desperation that they had, right, the way that they were penal- uh, killing penalties, like, their life depended on it. Like, they were playing in a way that – I think the Lightning need to take some notes. They have all the skill in the world, right? I really do like the roster construction, although I think that they got a couple too many defensemen right now. Um, I think that they're a team that can manage with average goaltending if that's all they're going to get, and we don't know. You know, Samsung has been above average, but he doesn't have a ton of playoff experience. Is Everything is right on paper. Stylistically, they're a good team to watch. Skillfully, they have the star power. They have everything like that, and they have – good depth forwards too defensively. 
but do they have that will over skill? And that's the one thing that like keeps going back and forth in my mind. And I'm generally not the kind of person that leans into that, right? Like I like facts, data, numbers, things like that. Um, and the big difference is Vasilevsky. He's playing at his highest level yet in the regular season, and he's had the toughest workload yet, and it has not dragged him down. We'll see how it goes down the stretch. But I just think if Vasilevsky's back is against the wall, he's going to put up another, like, a game-saving, you know, performance. And I don't know how the Maple Leafs respond to that. Like, how, did they learn enough from last year? You know, you mentioned the glut of uh, defensemen for the Leafs. And, I like, to me, Sheldon Keefe might have the most difficult job of any coach in the first round because he does have so many plausible options, right? And that's a great problem to have, but it also puts a lot of pressure on, pressure on the coach to figure out the right combinations, the right personnel, the right deployment. Is like, is that a potential stumbling block for the Leafs where maybe, okay, they have the players, but they don't figure out the way, right way to use them against Tampa Bay in this series? Yeah, absolutely. Like the thing with it was too, they were mixing and matching so often after the deadline, which rightfully so, but they didn't find, they found some options for themselves, but it's so hard. You have so few games there to really, really, really study the roster and give anyone like a legitimate amount of time to click. Like if they had this all year, I bet you they would have like plan A, B, C, D, and E like ready for you. But right now it's like, I don't know how confident you can be in every decision. And then it's, well, this didn't work. Do you panic and change? Or do you let them fly another side? Like that, it's something that it's going to be really tough coaching through that. I think someone like Cooper, or even like, especially I should say, someone like Bednar, I don't think any of us would be doubting it at all, mm. right? Because we've seen them out coach anybody. Someone like Mike Sullivan, I would trust in that situation too. Like Sheldon Keith, this is a big test for him to show like he can, he's not overwhelmed by the number of players he has. He's not going to be overwhelmed if the team gets you know outplayed there's a patience you have to have and you have to balance that with a pressure of doing this at the right time and not waiting till the last minute because that can be the killer right there you look look let's last year at minnesota's postseason when they finally decided to change their goal you're like if you had done that a couple games ago maybe you would have had a shot but you waited till the last second like does he make the decisions at the right time or is it going to be a panic move or he just waited too long because he had too much faith like it's a balancing act and it would have been nice if he had more time to really figure it out even if they started working maybe a month ahead of the deadline all these teams are acting so early but um it's it's a problem that i don't think many coaches would envy him for because there's a difference between having options and just far too many options so shannon i have this theory that you either you know win as a hero team or live long enough to become a one-three-one boring team, uh, and maybe that's successful. If the Leafs finally break through, given the way that they handled their deadline and and how they've prioritized, you know, in some ways, will and experience over over speed and skill, uh, gone against what sort of made them a seven-time consecutive playoff team. Does the league draw the lo- wrong lesson from that? <laughs> Are we at risk here of? of the Leafs becoming like a throwback lesson for everyone? Look, every single year, every contender can teach us something. Um, I really like to look at, it's something I've been writing every year for the last couple of seasons, and I probably will do it again when we get to the final eight or four teams. There's something to learn from every contender. The problem is there's something not to learn from every single contender. And for some reason that happens. You look at the Lightning's, 
cup run. And everyone's like, well, you need to have a third line like that. Like, no, the lesson is that you need to find your own depth player, not overspend on them and know when to cut bait. You need to find that under the radar player and realize they're on a bad team. And this is how they'll be on your team. If you maximize them. And this is a two way third line instead of a shutdown player. Right. And everyone was like, I need Blake Coleman. Let me sign him to a five-year deal. Let me give Barkley Gaudreau six years. Everybody always takes the wrong thing from it. You look at the Avalanche when how many people were like, well, it was because they got Josh Manson and that balanced out Sam Gerard's game. And it's like, no, Nathan McKinnon was otherworldly. And look at the skill they had in Kel McCarr. Like, everybody always takes the wrong thing, it feels like, because they want to fit their own narrative. So when the Leafs, regardless of what happens, some people are going to have it right on what lessons take. Someone's going to have it wrong. There's going to be a ton of lessons, but not all of them are the right one. And not all of them apply to every it's, – and it's not a one-shoe, a one-size-fits-all type of shoe either. Like, this is something that for some teams it might be a good lesson of you can get good shutdown defensemen and you can add to your blue line. Like, I don't know, maybe someone like Florida should be looking at that on how to do it without – taking away from the speed and skill. Like there's a way to do it and find that balance. Maybe that's the lesson, but someone will take it completely wrong, misinterpret it and, you know, really hurt themselves in the process. Shana, there's one playoff team that no one has anything to learn from and and it's Boston. There are no applicable lessons to, to the Boston Bruins team construction and success over the, over the course of the past decade. I'm convinced of this. Why? Hmm. Well, cause I mean, Look at look at how they got here. That's like, you know, aside from keeping a couple of mid round or a couple of mid first rounders and just like absolutely hitting home runs, something that's hard to believe is replicable given that those two picks are like the bread of a Zaboral Sanitian <laughs> <laughs> sandwich, right? Um, like aside from that, it's like, you, you know, they've traded a ton of first line caliber players to get here. Um, like I, I just, I, I don't think this is like, I don't think anyone should set out to mimic the Bruins. I don't think anyone can do it. Like, I don't think anyone else can replace, like you get a decade's worth of elite goaltending from Rask and then replace him in free agency with a guy who's been roughly league average. And all of a sudden he's great. Like the, the Bruins are, the Bruins are the one team that's impossible to mimic. I, I just, that's a, that's a rule of mine. What do you think? I'm going to disagree. I'm difficult. I have to disagree. <laughs> no, I think that I think that there are things that you can't mimic from the Bruins, and I don't think any team should be fully mimicked ever. I think you should be taking the best of the contenders and finding ways to make it apply to you. If it does, it might not. If you're the Rangers, should you be learning from the Bruins on how to have a goalie tandem? No, you know what you're doing. Just move forward with that. Um, know which depth, uh, know which core players to build around the Bergeron, the Marchand, mm. and lean into that. Figure out ways to keep supplementing your core. You know, the core players are the ones you have to build around. The Nathan McKinnons, Nico Rantanens, nobody else matters outside of that. You figure out ways, the Taylor Halls, the Tyler Bertuzzi's, the Charlie Coyles, the Jake DeBrus. Those are the, the accent pieces. Um, don't be afraid to go for someone on a bad team. Look at Lance, Hampus Lindholm. How many people would have, you know, turned around and like, no, he's bad now. You look at what he's doing in Anaheim. You really dig into the micro steps and really see what he's doing. How much is it him versus the environment? If you put him in the right surroundings, can you help that player rebound? Those are things to learn, too. Have in this league, if you don't have that perfect elite goaltender, have a tandem. Have a tandem so you have a goalie that's fresh for the stretch run. 
things like that. Like, I think that there's things to pick up on. Also, don't be afraid to change coaching, even if you're, you know, in the playoff picture. Maybe you feel like you need a new voice, and that's, you know, the key to it all. It's the right options there. Like, I think that there's some things, but not everyone can follow with it. But if you're a team like, say, I don't know, Florida, right? And you identify these are my these are my all star players, and for them it's Barkoff and Kachuk, and you go nobody else matters, and you can build around it, and you can mix and match. That's not a bad start if you can try to take notes, you know, from the Bruins on how to have defensive strength with that doesn't weigh down the offense like Calgary just did, and mm-hmm. how to like narrow in on your special teams. Like I do think that there's things to take here, but it's it's they're a tougher one to just nitpick at because. You know, not everyone can have a Patrice Bergeron. I, I got one more that actually is is worth drawing from the Bruins. Buy long term at the deadline. Hall, Lindholm, Coyle, yep. all acquired the same yep. way. And they they knew they were they, these were not rentals for them, right? They yeah. weren't going okay here. This and do you know what the other thing is? This is a team that knows they're not good at drafting and developing players. I mean, anyone from a mile away can spot that, right? Who on that roster has been dropped drafted in recent years besides like Trent Frederick, who? He's a third liner at best. And, you know, they went for him for, I think, all the real, wrong reasons, the physical play, the character, yada, yada, yada. Yeah. But they know that the draft picks are not going to help them right now. If you if you trade your 2023 pick, who cares if you're the Boston Bruins? That player's not helping you in your playoff window. You don't need that. And that's a lesson I think the Tampa Bay Lightning mm-hmm. showed us too, though they applied it poorly to themselves. And if drafting and developing isn't your strength, then don't use it. Find a way around that and build your team outside the draft. And I think they did a good job of it. Will it burn them in a couple of years? Sure. But they commit to this year. And that's fine. Shana, great stuff. As always, enjoy the, rock, uh, the rest of the series tonight. Uh, hopefully we can talk again soon. Thanks for having me. That is the great Shana Goldman from The Athletic and the Too Many Men podcast weighing in on the uh, first round of the playoffs, the series getting going tonight, and also just the idea of taking lessons and the best way to do that and some of the flaws are the flawed ways that teams do that taking lessons from contenders and stanley cup winning teams i thought there were some really interesting thoughts there from shana actually uh, so maybe we can continue that conversation a little bit because of course like one of the things we'll be doing along with everybody else in the city is okay what do these playoffs mean for the vancouver canucks what should the canucks be copying what shouldn't they be copying how does it help them how does it hurt them. Uh, we'll look ahead a little bit to the other playoff series that get going tonight, give you our thoughts on them. We can get back in the Canucks conversation as well. 650-650 is the Dunbar Lumber text line. It is Canucks talk here on Sportsnet 650. Welcome back to Canucks talk. Final segment of the show. Jamie Dodd, Thomas Trance. Live from the Kintec studio, 650-650 is the Dunbar Lumber text line. Dunbar Lumber with three stores to serve you in Ladner on Bridge Street or Dunbar Lumber Express at Ladner Center or Arbutus in Vancouver. Online at DunbarLumber.com. Next four rounds or the other four first round series uh, get going tonight, Drancer. And uh, for my money... Like, last night is the Premier Night in the Western Conference. Tonight is the Premier Night in the Eastern Conference. Did you make playoff picks? 
Uh, I did. I didn't. So here, uh, you didn't I, own them in public. No, but it's it's actually good because like three of the teams I chose in the series lost last well, night. Well, yeah, but that's okay. So I can give the picks without people like accusing me of uh, of switching uh, of switching. So okay. I'll, I'll I'll run it through how I had it for last night. We can, we can or, compare notes. Oh, here I'll I'll just I'll just rapid fire go through the Eastern Conference first. Okay. So I have Boston in five. Okay. Islanders, I have Boston in six. Islanders in six, which I have, is, is going to be a problem. I have Islanders in six as well. Oh, okay. Uh, I have Toronto in seven Me against too. Tampa. Oh we my agree. gosh. Oh, good. Oh, goodness. Hive mind. Uh, and then the Devils in six against have, the Rangers. I have Devils in five. So we're four so we're like, for four agreement. But like two games off. That's that's, that's too close. wild. Yeah. That's, that's too close. That's embarrassing. <laughs> oh, my goodness. All right. Let's hold hands and go through uh, the list. And then, anyways, I have, uh, <laughs> I have Vegas in five. I have Vegas in five. Edmonton in five. I have Oilers in seven. Okay. I have Colorado in four. I have Col- I have Colorado in five. Okay. And then I have Dallas in seven. I have Dallas in six. Oh, my God. So did we pick every series the same We're way? Eight That's eight. incredible. That's wild. With, like, what? Like, four games off total in having, the, across all eight series? It. So that's what – now for, for people who are like, Jamie, why don't you push back yeah, against yeah, yeah. Drance? It's like, here's why. We agree. <laughs> yeah. That was not that was not preplanned. Like I purposely avoided reading yours because I was like, no, 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 I, I just want to like do my own thing here. Yeah, don't my want own, my opinion yeah, polluted. Don't want it polluted exactly by your nasty opinion, um, which is identical to mine, apparently. <laughs> Speaking of my nasty opinion, I filed my ballot for NHL awards yesterday. I'm not going to get too deep into what mm-hmm. I picked, but I want to discuss something. I don't really buy. The Elias Pettersson Hart Trophy case this year. And part of the reason is that I don't really buy that Pettersson was this team's MVP. All right. I think it was Quinn Hughes. And and I think it was Quinn Hughes by some margin. Now, partly this is because of how the team is constructed. When Pettersson's not on the ice, you can still put out JT Miller or, yeah. or, or for large swaths of the season, Bo Horvat going on fuego, right? So... The, the fall-off is a lot less significant than it is when you go from Quinn Hughes to Oliver Ekman-Larsen or, or Christian Willanen. But as good as Pedersen was and as much as he transformed what this team was whenever he was on the ice, <laughs> I think it's hard to find a single player in the league that had a bigger impact on their team's results than Quinn Hughes, right? And I've talked about this a lot, but I'll do it again. 81 goals for... 61 goals against with Quinn Hughes on the ice at 5-on-5 five in five 1,500 minutes. You extrapolate that over like the 3,500 minutes that most teams play at 5-on-5, five five, 4,000 minutes. You, you know, you're you're a division-winning caliber team. Mm-hmm. So with Quinn Hughes on the ice, the Canucks are Vegas, effectively. With Quinn Hughes off of the ice, 2,500 minutes, minus 42. You extrapolate that over 4,000 minutes and you're the Anaheim Ducks. So like... Quinn Hughes personally, at, at even strength alone, changes Vancouver from being top three lottery odds quality team to being a division contending quality team, division winning contender quality team. You'll be hard pressed to find another individual player that makes that level of impact on their team's environment. Like, and, and so as I was going through the voting and, you know, the scoring's there, obviously, but for me, you know, there's obviously McDavid and he's in a class of his own yep. for MVP. And then it's like Kachuk 
and Pasternak. I think, yeah, I would say, like, consensus kind of top three is McDavid, obviously number one, yeah. and then, like, Kachuk and Pasternak In are their own sort of right tier. there for two, yeah. three. Yeah. And, and then for me, it's kind of like Robertson. I don't think Dreisaitl gets enough love as an MVP Dreis- candidate. Yeah. Just because people are like, oh, well, he plays with the best. It's yeah. not his fault he plays with McDavid. Fact is, is if you take Dreisaitl off that team, that's like a 95-point team with the best player on the planet on it. You know? You take McDavid off that team but leave Dreisaitl there, they're like a 93-point team with the third best player on the planet on it. You know? Like, both of those guys need to be there for that Oilers team to be special. And I, I think Dreisaitl didn't get enough consideration, frankly, considering the fact that you want to talk about consistent 50-goal, 100-point guys? There's one of them. There's only one in the world. It happens to be Leon Dreisaitl. Mm-hmm. Uh, but for me, it's like Dreisaitl, Robertson. Um, you know, I think I think McKinnon and Rantanen, uh, another pair of teammates who like really are going to split the vote and and probably neither get nominated. But like Rantanen carried this team for three four months and kept them afloat as they dealt with one of the biggest injury bug crises of, of the NHL season. And then from the All-Star break on, when as the Avs rose from 7th in the West to win their division, McKinnon led all NHL players in, in, goal sc- in, in point scoring, and not by a little bit. Like, he was on fuego. Like, for me, those, those guys, you have Robertson, um, you know, you have Jack Hughes, who was the best player on a team that had the, the single most successful single-season turnaround in the history of the league. I think he deserves a lot of credit there. And so what? I've now listed seven, eight players. Yep. And like for me, Pedersen's sort of the next stop tier. And and I mean, that merits consideration. Yeah. The only guy I think I would argue, not even necessarily strenuously, but like I think he would be in like a tier of Jason Robertson for me. No. I think he would. He's a center. He has way less help. Like Robertson plays on like one of the best lines in hockey, right? With Hints and Pavelski. And but he's a huge part of it, don't get me wrong. He, he drives it. He's the leading scorer on that line. Yeah, but those are two really great players. They are, but he's 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 the guy who drives it. No, he is, but it's still like if you're look it's still really hard to separate his individual impact from the fact that he gets to play with those two players compared with, you know, what Elias Pettersson was doing. And yeah, like Kuzmenko had a great season. But that had a lot more to do with Elias Pettersson than Andre Kuzmenko. And then it was like a rotating cast of guys beyond that yeah, alongside Elias Pettersson. All of whom he improved, right? So I'm not saying it's like a massive gap or anything, but I just think when you factor in the supporting cast he had around him and the fact that he plays center, I think it would be perfectly reasonable sure. to have Pettersson over Jason Robertson. Sure. I, I think it would be reasonable, but even then, Robertson for me is like the sixth or seventh highest consideration. Sure. Yeah. So either way, like. Pedersen was amazing, and I'm not trying to denigrate a, a season in which, for me, he should have been top 10 in Hart Trophy consideration, but the idea that he's top five or should be on ballots, um, I can't get there. I just can't get there. I've spent a lot of time thinking on it. Now, all of that said, I do think Quinn Hughes's contributions this season well, I'm sorry, are this, being th- underrated. The last thing I wanted to say about the Hart is, like, there's no shortage of candidates this year. No. And part of that is, like, scoring is so up, but, like, the the number of incredible individual performances is really striking in the NHL it, this year. Like, Miko Randon had 55 goals. He somehow had, like, a quiet 55-goal season. I know. Brain Point had 50 goals, no like, out of nowhere. No, I mean, everyone's like, oh, Tampa sucks. It, it was <laughs> wild. Well... <laughs> I honestly thought that this was one of the hardest ballots to put together. I thought there were clear number ones for Selkie and Hart, and I thought almost everything else 
was impossible to get right. Like, I wouldn't debate someone who had Robertson as high as three on their heart ballot. Mm. I wouldn't debate someone who had Dreisaitl as high as three on their heart ballot. If you had Jack Hughes second on your heart ballot, I'd be like, nah, I think it should have gone to Kachuk. But, like, not with a bullet. You know, and now, one thing is, I don't think Quinn Hughes will be a Norris finalist. Hampus Lindholm, Adam Fox, Eric Carlson, that's, you know, who I expect to be the finalists. A lot of Carlson skepticism in the, in the around the industry. Mm-hmm. Doesn't play penalty kill. That's the, the big knock against it. Guy was... I couldn't get past the fact that he was second among all NHL players in five-on-five offense behind only McDavid. Yep. That was a really hard one to get past for me. He had 27 power play points and 100 points. For the first time in 30 years, the defenseman has done it. That was really hard for me to get past, even though I sort of had... Like, I had Roman Yossi fourth on my ballot. So it's not like I'm a scoring... I'm a points looker, and I just vote based on points. Like, I'm not that guy. But for me, Carlson was hard to overlook given how much responsibility he has driving off for driving offense on that team and the fact that, you know, I don't think he cannibalizes their offense. I think he is it, right? Like, Roman Yossi was always, to me, a, a low-efficiency player. Mm-hmm. He, he drives more offense for himself than his team. Carlson did both. So I found it hard to overlook him, but... The the argument I like I think I would vote for Carlson if I had a ballot. The argument for me, it's the penalty killing is one part of it, but also just like what he's being asked to do, and he's being yeah. asked to base he's he's he, in a way he's being tasked with a ton of responsibility because as you said he is their offense, but it's also kind of like don't worry about anything else, go out there and freelance and do this and just be Eric Carlson. And hey, he has the talent to pull it off. He has the talent to justify it. I think if I was going to make an argument against him, like that would be my argument. He's basically playing in this like no stakes, do whatever you want environment. And that's what allowed him to put up those points. Yeah. And and, and I also struggled because a lot of the people who didn't vote for Carlson will have voted for Hampus Lindholm, right? Mm-hmm. And fair enough, Hampus Lindholm's incredible. Like, make no mistake. But for much of the season, aside from the first three months of it, where Hampus Lindholm played a huge role in establishing the Bruins' historic mm-hmm. pace, right? But for most of the season, I, I don't think you'd say he was the best defenseman on the Bruins. I think you'd say that Charlie McAvoy was. No, the Lindholm thing is fascinating. And again, I don't have a problem with people voting I mean, for I him. Mean, here, here's what you need to know about Hampus Lindholm, though. 76 goals for yeah 36 goals against yeah no like he, he had a ridiculous season <laughs> How does but that like, even makes sense the I, I just i find like lindholm's candidacy is like the polar opposite of quinn hughes mm. right because quinn hughes it's all about yes it's about what he can do but it's all about the people he was playing with and the environment he was playing with and how he kind of individually was salvaging that environment and keeping teammates afloat that had no business staying afloat in the nhl Lindholm's the exact opposite, where, yes, he's performing at a very high level, but he's doing it in, like, the most favorable favorable environment possible on a juggernaut powerhouse team with, you know, the best defensive center in the league, with this incredible, like, veteran savvy all over the roster. And as you said, after the first couple months of the season, an elite number one defenseman on his team as well. Again, I don't ha- that's not to say, like, people who vote for Lindholm high up their ballot are wrong or no, anything. No, no, no. I, it would give There's me a good pause. Case. There's it a would good give case. me pause, though. A lot of the smartest people that I talk to in the business think Lindholm should win it. A lot of them. Okay? And then you get to Fox, 
And there's a lot of people who will vote for Fox, too, based on mm-hmm. Lindholm is the second best defenseman on the Bruins and was for the majority of the season, 67 games in which him and McAvoy both played. Um, you know, Fox has the counting stats, but not quite the Carlson counting stats, blah, blah, blah. The problem for me is I don't think Fox is like Fox is better defensively than Eric Carlson. Don't get don't get me wrong. But like the Fox's defensive play is not his calling card. You know? Um No, he's he's an offensively oriented defenseman, right? Like, yeah. 100%. And, and, and his his defensive play is fine. Like he kills penalties sometimes. But to be totally honest, the leap Quinn Hughes made this season as a defensive player puts him in a different category than Fox for me. For me. I, I think I think as a product of this team's lack of success, Hughes is truly Norris caliber season. Like absolutely should be in the discussion with those guys, sort of gets thrown into the um Springfield mystery spot hole and just falls forever. And and it's too bad because I, I really do think like when I think about Quinn Hughes's game this year, what really stands out to me is all the times where in the past, okay, there's a dump in and he doesn't get the step that he usually does, mm-hmm. right? And it's a 50-50 battle. And in the past, oftentimes, he'd get overpowered or he'd lose that battle. He wouldn't come out with the puck all the time. Oftentimes he did, but not all the time. And once that happened, you'd be playing defense. And if a, if there was another 50-50 engagement along the wall or in front of the net, Quinn Hughes would be liable to lose it. Now he's grafted this, like, man strength on his on his frame and time after time shift after shift engagement after engagement Hughes was coming out of the puck out with the puck and and with the way that Hughes dominates possession of the puck with the gravity that that he exerts with his decision making and his ability to juke defenders spin off just like handle the puck and create offense he has fewer opportunities to defend anyway. So even when he wasn't the player he now is defensively, he was in in positions where he had to defend so rarely that he was still a massive net positive. Yeah. And I, I, even then, I thought his the the criticisms of his defensive play, while valid, were unfair, or at least were missing the point. Now, shift after shift, Hughes comes out with the puck, and the moment he's got the puck, it's going the other way, every time. He's better at jumping into passing lanes. Teams try to put it low behind the net. Quinn Hughes is fast to get to it. And the moment he has the puck, it's going the other way. He looks so miserable to play against. Like It, it feels like it would be so frustrating because the moment you're an attacking forward and 43 gets the puck, it's like, okay, well, we're on defense now. Mm-hmm. I, 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 people talked about Pedersen for Hart. People talked about Pedersen for Selkie. I couldn't get there with either. People didn't spend enough time, I don't think, really appreciating the fact that Hughes had a Norris caliber season, if not for the the team not having significant enough success to really generate buzz around him. Um, that was pretty positive. Producer Dom was getting in my ear, though. Like, I don't know if we're gonna do ten minutes of positivity now that the season is over, because that's just like there's no like new grist for the mill. You know what I <laughs> Let's mean? Do it once a week. We do it once a week. We do it once a week. Once Dom, a week, Dom? is that is that acceptable to you? <laughs> Tom giving me the shrug. I'm I'm really positive you, about it. Use your judgment, producer. I don't make the rules. Alright, let's do let's do it once a week. Okay. We'll do it we'll do it once a week. I was gonna say that was pretty that was pretty positive. We, we might also Friday heading into the week. Yes. We'll wrap up the show on Friday. 
or or something. We'll do it at some point on Friday. Anyways, so thank you, Dom. I we had people texting in like, is it still a thing or is it, you know, what's going on? So we'll do it once a week for the summer and maybe we'll widen it a little bit uh, so it doesn't have to be uh, strictly Canucks related. This this text comes in, uh, Drance. If you think PD is top ten for the heart, but Quinn is above him on this team, well, then you're saying we have two top ten heart candidates. No, no, no. I'm I, I'm I I'm not saying that at all. I I think Pedersen because of the because of the overall production. I just think there's an argument to be made that he wasn't the most valuable player on his own team, given the impact. I that think Hughes it's had. close. Like I don't think it's like no doubt Quinn Hughes was ahead of him. I can see the argument. I'm just just saying it's an argument that would have caused me to be like, if there was no player having, if there was no player outside of Pedersen having Hughes's sort of impact where, where you could credibly be like, eh, it could be one, could be the other. um, Then, then Pedersen's case gets stronger for me. But the fact that there's doubt dampens his case, Mm. right? Like if we're not going to consider Dreisaitl because he plays with McDavid, and I think that's preposterous. I, I strongly consider Dreisaitl. Um, but if you're if you're going to have that sort of bias pl- at play in voting, I think the same thing should apply to Pedersen. Yeah, I just think um, Quinn Hughes, like the valuable case, hinges so much on like the other players on the Canucks blue line, which is fair because yeah. they the dearth of talent highlights what he does there totally. so much. Uh, we got to go today. We will be back tomorrow to continue to break down the Canucks offseason and the Stanley Cup playoffs. It is Canucks talk here on Sportsnet 650.